How's it going everybody? You're listening to The Raven's Grove. I'm your host, Dahi, and this is yet another themed episode of Random Factums. In fact, this is our second episode of Random Factums Movies and TV Show Editions, where we get to explore some of the lesser known facts about movies and TV shows. Now, before I get started, this episode will feature the following trigger warnings. It'll feature violence towards women as depicted on screen. And it will feature scenes from the film Black 47, which is based around the Irish famine. So if any of those are in any way an issue for you, please give this episode a miss. Alright, now those are out of the way, let's get started. So the first fact is actually to do with one of the most famous scenes in Steven Spielberg's entire cinema library. Now... As many of you may know, I trained as an archaeologist, and any archaeologist worth their salt will have mixed feelings about the Indiana Jones series, but one thing you can't deny is that the Indiana Jones films made an indelible mark on archaeology as a profession. I mean, for Pete's sake, the I'm not making this up, the actual number of people who studied archaeology at university levels went up 800% after Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. It's a huge number. Most archaeologists who trained in the modern day owe their interest in archaeology in some way to either Indiana Jones or Time Team. However, one thing that many people may not know is that one of the most famous scenes in Raiders was actually a spur-of-the-moment decision by Harrison Ford. So you remember the scene in Raiders where, if you, okay, pause for a second. If you haven't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, pause this episode, go watch it, and then resume the episode. How was it? Pretty awesome, right? It's like a cinema classic. Now the thing is that the scene where Indy is in the marketplace and there's a swordsman waving sword around, Indy just pulls out the gun and blasts him, that was not meant to happen. You see... The original scene was that they'd get into a huge big sword fight, sword against whip, and the butcher behind Indy would have, like, his meat chopped up by the swordsman as he was swinging at Indy. It was a whole big choreographed fight scene. But the thing is that when they were filming in Tunisia, they had the entirety of the cast and crew, with the exception of Steven Spielberg, had food poisoning and cholera in a really bad way. Apparently, Harrison Ford could barely stand in that scene. And so, when he, when the swordsman comes along, waving the gun, the sword around, Harrison Ford just thought, you know what, effort, I'm going to do something crazy, and he pulls out the gun and just shoots him. Now, this in itself was a spur of the moment thing, but they're always just so sick and so tired of filming continues that they went, right, that's it, that's a wrap, and they went back to England. And upon reviewing the footage, it worked out to their benefit because it was so much more iconic of an Indiana Jones scene. I mean, come on, that's characteristic of Indy. He's a combat pragmatist. He fights dirty to win. And so it's just one of the most iconic scenes in the Indiana Jones movies, and it's a complete ad lib, which I think is just hilarious. So the second fact is also about one of the most famous things in movie history. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, folks, and assume that most of you have at least heard of James Bond. If you haven't seen the films, you've at least heard of them. Now, one thing that everyone associates with James Bond is Aston Martin luxury automobiles. Now, that's actually for a very good reason. See, in the original books, Bond drives a Bentley 1930 4.5 litre supercharged, otherwise known as a Bentley blower. It's one of my favourite classic cars. It is a absolute gem of a 1930s race car 
and Bond tries that in most of the books until Moonraker. Now, bear in mind, the books came out before the films, and the films got the books in the wrong order, so just so you know, that is an actual thing. So, in the book Moonraker, Bond gets the car written off, like he's in a car chase, he gets destroyed, and he's left without a car. Then when Ian Fleming was sitting down to write Goldfinger, he got a letter from a, I've, I've forgotten the guy's name, but he was a doctor in Oxford. Basically, he's sending a letter saying to Ian Fleming, I hope you have the decency to fix Bond up with a decent beer kit. I would suggest either the Jaguar XK120 or the Aston Martin DB3. And so Ian Fleming looked into those and he went and chose a DB3. When they made Goldfinger, the movie, they, came, they just updated it to DB5. However... When they went to go and update it to the DB5, they went to Aston Martin, and by this time, Dr. No and From Russia With Love had already come out. So it was a huge deal. Bond, James Bond was really starting to take off. It was a massive, massive intellectual property. And so they went to Aston Martin and said, hey, we'd like to have one of your brand new DB5s for the film. And the guy from Aston Martin went and said, no, are you crazy? You're not getting one. And they go, well, have you seen Dr. No? No. What about from Russia to Love? No, I haven't seen it, but I'll tell you what, I will sell you a DB5 at the full market price of £5,000. Bear in mind, this is in 1960s currency. That is a staggeringly high amount of money. And at this point, the Bond producers were in danger of making James Bond drive a Mustang or something similar. And, I mean, to be fair, that's that would work for someone like John Wick, but it would not work for James Bond. And so they eventually caved and went, okay, fine, we'll put five, we'll pay five thousand pounds to have the DB5. But the thing is that it cost twenty five thousand pounds to put all the gadgets in the car. See all those gadgets that you associate with James Bond cars, like the ejector seat, the tire shredders, the rotating number plates, all that really cool vintage spy stuff. That was all practical special effects. They they didn't have computer generated effects really in the sixties, and so. When you see all those gadgets that the Bond car and Goldfinger is actually doing, that car's actually doing it. They are not fake. And that, for me, is just incredible. It's, it's practical special effects in the best possible way. So it's just kind of ironic for me that they would have to spend £5,000 on a brand new top-of-the-line DB5 and then spend five times that money putting all the gadgets in the car. And now everyone associates James Bond with Aston Martin to the point that you can buy an Aston Martin based on the fact that, if you've got the money for it, that on, on the fact that you saw a James, uh, James Bond movie. Just kind of funny, really. Okay, so the third, third film is actually to do with violence against women, but more to the point, it's to do with one actor's refusal to partake in this. See, as many of you may know, I'm a fan of Western movies, and one of my favorite actors in Western movies is Lee Van Cleef. Uh, my favorite Western of all time is For a Few Dollars More, where he pays plays the bounty hunter Colonel Douglas Mortimer. That was the first film I ever saw him in, and he was amazing in that. Then I saw him in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and he is terrifying. He plays the bad guy Angel Eyes in that, and Angel Eyes is, well, to put it bluntly, he's a sadistic monster of a human being, but there's one scene where Lee Van Cleef refused to shoot. You see, it's a scene where he's interrogating a former colleague's girlfriend for information about the former colleague, and the a script called for Lee Van Cleef to pretend to slap a woman, like the uh, the actress who was playing the girlfriend. And bear in mind, this is in the mid-60s, and 
stunt people were quite common with this type of thing. Now, Lee Van Cleef flat out refused to do it. Like, just would not do it. He refused on principle. He never hit a woman in any way, shape, or form. Now, even the actress was saying, you know what, it's fake. Just go for it. I'll be fine. He completely refused on principle to do it, which, in my opinion, is an absolutely noble thing to do. So when they came to film that scene, they actually had to do some clever cutting, which is Van Cleef slapping the camera and a stunt person slapping the actress who was uh, playing the, the part. And so it looked kind of like you know, Lee Van Cleef was doing it, but he actually isn't. It's very, very impressive. Whew. All right, so fact number four is about one of my favorite films. It's called Black 47. Now, if you haven't seen it, I recommend it, but be warned, it's about the Irish famine. It is a very dark film. Think almost like a cross between John Wick and Braveheart, set during the 1840s. It's an amazingly well-done film on many levels. Like The cinematography is amazing. The soundtrack is exceptional. The storyline is really, really gripping. And the performances by a lot of the cast are absolutely stellar. It's got Hugo Weaving in it, for Pete's sake. He's awesome. But the thing I want to talk to you about today is actually to do with the actor who played the main character of Marcin Feeney. The actor's name is James Freshfield. He's from Melbourne, my hometown. And the thing is, he actually did something that I have the utmost respect for him for doing. Now, a bit of context here. I've tried to learn Irish Gaelic. I can speak a little bit of it. I used to be able to speak more. And I can say without any certain, without any doubt in my mind, that is one of the hardest languages I've ever tried to learn. Just the grammatical structure, the way you pronounce words, the different mutations. It is an amazingly difficult language to learn for a native English speaker, especially if you haven't learned languages before. James Freshfield, most of his role in Black Boy 7 is in Irish. Like, that's it. He mainly speaks Irish. There's maybe a handful of scenes where he speaks English. In addition, he had to learn the Connacht dialect. Now, for reference, there are three main dialects of Irish. You've got Ulster, Munster, and Connacht. Connacht is not very popular as in terms of numbers, it's spoken in the west of Ireland, and when I say popular in numbers, I mean that the majority of numbers of people who speak Irish is the Munster dialect, which is in the south of Ireland, it's like from County Court, County Kerry, it's a dialect I speak, it's the most numerically big number uh, dialect, right? If you're from Northern Ireland, you'll speak the Ulster dialect, if you're from the west of Ireland, you'll speak the Connacht dialect. But the thing is, this character came from the west of Ireland, James Freshie will learn to speak the Connacht dialect flawlessly for the role and I have the utmost respect for him for doing that like I said Irish is an amazingly difficult language to learn and yet he nailed it pronunciation vocab everything for that role and considering it's an action movie it that just makes it so much better that he would be willing to put in the time and effort into doing that so seriously, if you haven't seen that film, I'd highly recommend it. It's an amazingly well-done movie. Just be warned, if you've got any triggers to do with the Irish famine or with innocent people being killed by, for want of a better term, an attempted genocide, I would give it a miss. But it's an amazingly well-done film, so I'd highly recommend it to anyone who wants to see it. So, fact number five is also about Celtic languages, but more specifically, it's about what Celtic languages are substituted for which other ones. Now... Obviously, you can tell I love languages, but the thing is that there have been quite a few depictions of the Picts in a lot of media. Pictish people are people from the Highlands of Scotland, 
And they are the ones that you see in like the Kieran Knightley version of King Arthur or in the film Centurion, which is an amazing film. I love that film. And so they're the people that fought the Romans north of Hadrian's Wall. They were fierce, fierce warriors. They were the reason that the Romans couldn't fully conquer Britannia. Now, the thing is that the Picts in those films, they're actually not speaking Pictish. You see, Pictish as a language, we have no written records for. We have no idea what it sounded like. The best guess is that it sounded something similar to ancient Welsh. Now, the reason for that is that Pictish as a language was before the Gaels from Ireland moved north into Scotland. Around about 300 AD, that's when that happened. And when that happened, the Pictish culture was absorbed completely into Gaelic culture in Scotland. And as a result, Pictish language died out. Now, the best estimate, according to archaeolinguists, is that Pictish would have sounded something similar to ancient Welsh. However, when it comes time to film those scenes in movies, a lot of people don't put in ancient Welsh because they think, okay, that would just be too weird. It would be too bizarre for someone who speaks like Scots Gaelic or Irish Gaelic or uh, or Welsh to hear a Welsh language coming out of Scottish Highland uh, in that era. And so because of that, they often will substitute ancient Scots Gaelic or ancient Irish Gaelic into those roles. Now, apart from the fact that that's inaccurate, I can understand why they're doing that. Like, if you're if you've grown up speaking Scots Gaelic or Irish Gaelic, and you see someone speaking Welsh in a scene that's set in Scotland, it's going to be pretty jarring. But at the same time, it's not exactly accurate in terms of the linguistics. But like I said, we have no written records for what Pictish sounded like. We could be completely wrong. So, yeah, it just depends on what you think. So, our final fact for today is actually to do with Quentin Tarantino. Now, regardless of what you think of Tarantino's works, he is a very, very accomplished director. And the thing is that with his works, Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, there's actually a very big connection between them. Now, what this connection is is actually quite surprising. The character of Vince Vega, the hitman from Pulp Fiction, who was played by John Travolta, and Mr. White in Reservoir Dogs, played by, I honestly don't know, I haven't seen, I know the character, I can't remember the actor's name, but those two characters are actually brothers. Yeah, Spielberg actually intended for their biggest sequel called The Tale of the Vega Brothers, but unfortunately, when he realized neither of the actors was was young enough to reliably play a younger version of their characters, he had to show the project and give it up. But yeah, Mr. White and Vince Vega are actually biological brothers in the storyline. So yeah, kind of crazy. Anyways, thanks for listening to for today's folks. That's all we have time for. I've been Dahi, you've been awesome, and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.